I pointed out last Sunday that the child of God is to resolve to be guided by God's word. In that familiar verse, Psalm 119, verse 105, the psalmist declared that God's word was a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. We have to make sure that we do not misapply that verse and that we do not misapply the principle of being guided by God's word. The Bible does not directly guide us in what job to take, in what clothes to wear, in what place to live, or in what school to attend. The Bible is not designed to directly guide you in those areas, but it does indirectly provide help in these matters. When the psalmist declares that the word of God is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path, he is saying that God's word directs him and God's word guides him into godliness and into holiness. That's what the Bible is designed to do. It's designed to help us to be godly. It's designed to help us to be holy. And we do need guidance in being godly. We do. When you think of the fact that the Bible puts a premium on godliness, we need guidance in that area. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul told Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. As Paul is pointing out what is significant, what is important, he says, Timothy, godliness with contentment, that's great gain. And he even told Timothy earlier in that book to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. That is, godliness takes effort. Godliness takes work. It does not come automatically. And the reason why it's difficult, the reason why it's hard, is not only due to our own depravity, but because of the fact that we live in an ungodly world. I hope you're convinced of that. If you're not convinced that we live in an ungodly world, then pick up the newspaper and read it. Turn on your TV and watch the news. And if that is not enough, open up the word of God. Go to 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that dangerous and difficult and hard-to-bear times are coming. In other words, he says, Timothy, ungodly times are coming. And in fact, Timothy, you're living in them. And when Paul gives all of these reasons why the times will be ungodly, he starts the list off by saying, first of all, the reason why the times will be ungodly, why we will live in an ungodly world, is because men and women and boys and girls will be lovers of themselves. That's how he starts the list, that they will be lovers of themselves. 
And then when Paul finishes the list, he finishes the list that says, even though individuals will love themselves, they will be religious. He says that they will have a form of godliness, but lack the power of godliness. And Paul said, because of this list, that's why the times will be dangerous. That's why the times will be hard and difficult. And so we need to recognize that even though we are to pursue this wonderful quality of godliness, it won't be easy. It will be difficult because we live in an ungodly world. Our text helps us to navigate being godly in an ungodly world. The psalmist desired to be godly. He desired to please God. And yet he found him living in times where the people were evil doers, where the people were wicked, where the people have gone astray from the word of God. And yet, they were all around him. And so the question is, how can he navigate circumstances like that? When there are doers of evil, when there are wicked people, when there are people who are straying from the word of God, how does the child of God navigate navigate through times like that? How can they make sure they stay on the path of godliness? Well, the psalmist tells us how he did it, and he provides help for you and for me. He walked the path of godliness, even though he lived in an ungodly world. And he says, this is how we can do it. This is how we can navigate godliness in an ungodly world. He provides us with three guidelines. We navigate godliness in an ungodly world by being devoted to God's word. I know that sounds like a broken record. If you are familiar with Psalm 119, he, he makes it clear That when it comes to the circumstances of life, when it comes to living life, that the word of God is central and important. So it does not shock us as he gives us this guideline on navigating godliness in ungodly time that he would mention that there has to be a commitment, there has to be a devotion to God's word. That's what these 176 verses are all about. The theme of these verses is the word of God in the child of God, living for the glory of God. So we're not shocked at all that the psalmist would give as a guideline, be devoted to God's word. What does that mean? What does it mean to be devoted to God's word. The child of God is devoted to the word of God when he or she loves the word of God. When you love the word of God, that is an aspect 
and an element of being devoted to the word of God. In verse 113, the psalmist shocks us because he doesn't begin the verse by saying that he loves God's word. He begins the verse by talking about hate. This man who loves God, loves the word of God, loves the ways of God, says, I hate those who are double-minded. Those strong words. You mean I can be a child of God? You mean I can be a lover of God and actually hate those who are double-minded? That's what he tells us when he talks about the double-minded. He's talking about the divided ones who who vacillate between two things. He's talking about the unbelieving ones who waffle between two opinions. When he talks about these double-minded, he's talking about disloyal ones who seesaw in their loyalty. He's talking about those who lack a single devotion to God and to his word. He refers to them as double-minded. And he says, I hate those who are double-minded. Now, don't get all hung up and concerned about, should I be leaving Fairview and figuring out who I should hate? Okay, that's not the goal of the verse. The verse presents a contrast between hate and love. What we are to focus on is not on who can I hate. We are to focus on who am I to love and what am I to love. And so the psalmist says, yes, in contrast to the fact that I hate those who are double-minded, those who lack a singular focus and devotion to God. He says, I love God's law. I love God's instruction. I love the Bible. I I love the word. And this is not the first time that the psalmist says something like this. Ten different times in this psalm, in these 176 verses, he declares his love for, not God, but for the word of God. Verse 97, he says, oh, how I love thy law. God, I I want you to know, I want you to understand that I love your law. A little bit later on in verse 127, he's going to say that he loves God's word more than he loves gold, more than he loves money, more than he loves the material things of this world. And even in this stanza, a little bit later, in verse 119, he's going to declare again how he loves the testimonies of God. When you are devoted to God, you love his word. That doesn't mean you cuddle up with it and hug it and have this emotional feeling about it. It means that you are committed to his word, that you are dedicated to his word, that you are, have chosen to live by the word. 
And so the psalmist wants us to know to be devoted to God's word means, first of all, that I love it, that I love his word. The child of God is devoted to the word of God when he or she waits for the word of God. There's a waiting on God's word. But before the psalmist talks about that, look at the initial verses, the initial words of verse 114. He says and gives his testimony to God. He says, God, you are my hiding place and you are my shield. What a testimony that this psalmist has lived life enough that he can now say before God, God, you are my hiding place. God, you are my shield. That is, you're my refuge and protection. You're my shelter and defender. Uh, You're the one that I seek rest in. When things are hard and things are difficult, the, the place that I go is to you, God. I hide myself in you. That's what he's declaring by talking about God as a shelter and God as a shield. I'm sure if we could talk to the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, they could give the same testimony. God was their hiding place. God was their shield. God was their refuge. And even if they were to be burned up in the fiery furnace, they chose to obey God. If we could call Daniel on the scene, in the lion's den, sleeping in the lion's den, his testimony would be that God is my hiding place. God is my shield. He's the one that I take refuge in. I don't find some physical house. I don't find some place. I don't find some opium. I don't find some drink. God, the psalmist says, is my hiding place. He's my shield. He's the one. And no wonder when you have that kind of testimony, and it doesn't come just because you're a Christian. It comes because you walk with God. Because you have tried God. You have learned from God that, yes, he is faithful. He is reliable. He will see you through. And having done that over and over again, you can say, God, you're my hiding place. You're my refuge. You're the one who protects me and shields me through all of the dangers and harms of life. And having said that, It does not surprise us that he says at the end of verse 14, 114, I wait for thy word. In other words, he puts his hope in the promises of God. And even though he might not see immediate results, he's waiting on God to respond and to act. He's trusting God 
to work in his life and to bring about what God has promised him. The child of God is devoted to the word of God when he or she observes the word of God. Not just simply loves the word, not just simply waits for the word, but observes the word. The acid test of if I love God's word it is not me quoting it, memorizing it, meditating on it. It's not me reading it. It's not me preaching it or teaching it. It's me obeying it. That's the acid test. The same thing our Lord said. He, he said, if you love me, you, you will keep my commandment. If you love God's word, you will do it. You will obey it. He wants to be obedient. He says in verse 115, there's something very unusual. If you've ever read through Psalm 119, if you ever heard me say different things about one, Psalm 119, I've pointed out on many occasions that basically the psalmist is talking to God. Once you get to verse 4, all the way to the rest of the psalm, the rest of the 176 verses, the psalmist is talking and praying and testifying and communicating with God. And that's why you can say, God, I wait for your word. God, I love your law. <laughs> but you come to verse 115, and he does something strange. He directs his words not to God, but to those that he calls evildoers. That is very, very rare. It's almost as he's saying that, that as he talks to God, as he speaks to God, that evildoers are somewhere in his presence. They're somewhere under the sound of his voice. And he's saying evildoers, that is wicked ones, those who are out to get me. He commands them, depart, get out of my face, turn away from me, get out of here. Not trying to be cruel or trying to be mean, but he says that in order that he might keep the commandments of his God. He understands that it is challenging to be obedient to God's word in the presence of evildoers makes it even harder. So he wants the evildoers to get out of his face, to get lost, so that he can keep God's commandments. How is your devotion to the Bible? How's your devotion to God's word? Do you love it? Do you wait and trust in God's word? Are you committed to obeying the word of God? In order to navigate godliness in an ungodly world, it is essential and crucial that the child of God be devoted 
to the Bible. There's another guideline that the psalmist gives. This is not the only thing that he says about navigating godliness in ungodly times and in an ungodly world. We navigate godliness in an ungodly world by being dependent on God. Not just being devoted to his word, but being dependent and reliant upon God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's not enough to have desire and determination when it comes to living for God. There must be distrust and dependency on God. You can have all the desire and all of the determination in the world. You can make up resolutions one through a hundred. But desire and determination is not enough. There must be distrust. You must say to God, keep me from wandering from your word. Hold me up. Enable me. There must be a distrust that manifests itself in dependency, in crying out to God in prayer. As we navigate through these wicked times, as we walk through this wicked world, we need to be dependent upon God. To be dependent upon God means you trust in the sufficiency of God. I know there's the debate about that. I know there are individuals who don't believe that God is enough. But the psalmist believed that God was enough. The the psalmist believed that God was sufficient. The psalmist believed that God could work and move in his situation. You trust in the sufficiency of God reflects being dependent upon him. Now, how do I do that? How do I trust in the sufficiency of God? We do what the psalmist did in verses 116 and 117. And what did he do? He cried out to God in prayer. That's how you express trust in the sufficiency of God. He makes three prayer requests In these two verses, the first prayer request is God sustain me. God sustain me. God uphold me. God support me. It's as if he's looking at his life and he's saying, God, I'm ready to collapse. I'm ready to fall down. And I don't have the strength to prop myself up. I'm at the end of the rope, so to speak. And so, God, I'm coming to you. I'm dependent upon you. I believe you are sufficient. So I cry out to you, sustain me, God, according to your word, that is, according to the promises in the word of God. I do hope you know that God says in his word that he will keep his people that he will protect his people and undergird his people. And the psalmist says, I'm coming to you, God, because I believe you are sufficient. I'm asking you to sustain me. 
But the second prayer request, he says, God, do not let me be ashamed of my hope. His hope was in God. His hope was in the word of God. And he's saying, God, I need you to act. I need you to come through on your promises so that I won't have to hang my head in shame as one who has put his trust and confidence in what God has said. In other words, he doesn't want to walk around as someone who's humiliated, one who is discredited, an individual who believes that God will do this, but God doesn't come through. God, don't let me be ashamed. I've gone on record that you are a God who's able to do it, that you are sufficient. Come through, God. Work, God. Don't let me be ashamed of my hope. And then his third prayer request is like his first one. He says, God, uphold me. Establish me. I'm about ready again to collapse and sway. Things are bad. Things are difficult. And God, I need you to uphold me. Those are wonderful prayer requests that expresses a person's trust in the sufficiency of God. They come to God and ask God, to sustain him. They ask God, do not let me be ashamed of my hope. They ask God to uphold me. But I want you to see there's more to this than that. In verses 116 and verses 117, I want you to see that the psalmist deals with what God is sufficient to do. It's not just trusting in his sufficiency by praying and crying out to him, but the child of God must have an understanding of what God is able to do. See, if you don't understand what God is able to do, then you won't cry out to him. You won't ask him to help you and sustain you. And so when you look at these verses a little bit more closely, the psalmist talks about why he prays what he prays. He prays what he prays in order that God might make him live. He believes that the God of heaven and earth has the power, the energy, the strength, that he's the source of life. Real life, abundant life, genuine life. And he says, God, I'm asking you to sustain me because I know what you can do. You have the ability to put pep in people's step. You have the ability to cause people to live who become on the verge of dying, so to speak. He believes God can do this. He is trusting God to make him live. Only God can do that. Only God is sufficient and has the ability to do that. And that's why the psalmist goes to God. But he also believes that God is able to make him safe. 
In the beginning of verse 117, he said, Uphold me that I may be safe. Literally, that I might be rescued and that I might be delivered from what I am involved in. God, I want safety. I want being rescued. I want deliverance. You can do that, God. And that's why I come to you and not to anyone else. He is trusting God to make him attentive to God's word. He says at the end of verse 17, Uphold me, God, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. And the idea of regard means that your focus is on the word, that your gaze is upon the word, your attention is given to the word. How can I be focused on the word of God in a world with filled with all these distractions? Some of us can't listen to the word or read the word because our phones and our pads, computers are distracting us. How do I stay focused on the word of God? How do I make sure that my gaze is on God's word and God's word alone? The psalmist says, God, you have to uphold me. You have to work in my life. You have to be the one who makes me attentive to your word. And you can do that, God. You can do that continually. So the psalmist talks about trusting in the sufficiency of God. But in verses 118 and 119, he talks about trusting in the sovereignty of God. If you just look at that word sovereign and break it down, reign, it says that God rules and that God reigns. If you're going to make it through this messed up world, you got to believe in the sovereignty of God. You have to believe that heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool. When you see all the chaos and all the mess that goes on in our world, it's easy to believe there is no God who's ruling and reigning. When you're on earth, and see all the stuff going on on earth, it's hard to believe there's a God in heaven who's ruling and reigning. But but when you look at it from God's point of view, when you look at it from heaven's point of view, when you look at it from the fact that God is reigning and ruling from heaven, you see that the things on earth are under his control. They're under his control. The psalmist doesn't have his head buried in the sand. Life's not easy for him. He's got enemies. There are evil doers. There are those who aren't living right. And what helps him deal with that is that his God reigns in heaven. And the thing that he focuses in on in these two verses, the observations, the two observations that he makes is regarding the judgment of God. People laugh sometimes at the judgment of God. They think that God doesn't judge, that God isn't just. 
psalmist doesn't take that position. <laughs> he, he, he says in verse 118, his first observation, he says to God, God, you have rejected all those who wander from thy statutes. Earlier in verse 10 of Psalm 119, the psalmist prayed, God, don't let me wander from thy commandments. That's a good prayer. It goes back to that idea, not trusting yourself, but trusting God, dependent upon God. The, the psalmist says, God, don't let me wander. If you leave it up to me, God, if it's in my hand, I will wander. I will go astray. God, don't let that happen in my life. And so now when he comes to this verse, he says, God has rejected all those who have gone astray. All of those who wander from God's statutes. No wonder he doesn't want to wander. He knows that if he wanders and goes astray from God's word, he faces a rejection of God. And for those who die, having wandered away from God's word, they will experience the rejection of God throughout all eternity. God, you are sovereign. I'm reminded of your judgment. Your judgment is against those who wander and stray and turn aside from your commandments, from your statutes. Your judgment, God, is that you reject those who reject you. God, there are individuals who reject your commandments, your statutes. And I know, God, that you reject them. My friends, don't die without Christ. Don't die having wandered away from God's statutes and commandments. But the psalmist makes another observation. Not only has God rejected those who have wandered from God's commandments, he says that God has removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Strong language. Removed. Gotten rid of. Dispelled with. Who? All the wicked of the earth. Not only have you rejected them, God, you have removed them. So the psalmist, as he's living his life, can reflect back and he can see how God has dealt with the wicked. He, has, he can see that God at times has removed the wicked and allowed his people to prosper. But we need to understand that in time and history, as the psalmist writes these words, the, the wicked are still present. He's saying, God, you've removed all the wicked of the Oh, no, he hasn't. That's why the wicked wait to destroy the psalmist. That's why the wicked 
lay traps to entrap the psalmist. If the wicked had been removed, he wouldn't have any problems at all. But the reality of the matter is that when the psalmist makes this statement, he knows that God has in the past removed the wicked of the earth, and he knows ultimately that in the future, the day is coming where God will remove all the wicked of the earth. And the psalmist is assured of the sovereignty of God. He's certain of it. Yes, the wicked might afflict me, my life might be in danger, it might be difficult, but, but I know, God, that you in your sovereignty, in your time, will deal with the wicked just as it has been said. All the wicked of the earth will be removed, and that causes the psalmist to respond in two different ways. This idea of the judgment of God, the judgment of God upon those who reject him, those who have turned their back on him. When the psalmist thinks about the judgment of God, it produces two responses in him. The the first response is at the end of verse 19. After saying, God, you have rejected, God, you have removed, therefore, I love thy testimonies. The the judgment of God causes the psalmist to love the word of God, causes the psalmist to be devoted and committed to the word of God. But the second response brings us to our last point. And our last point is seeing in the fact that we have the guideline that the child of God must have the word of God in him. And as he lives his life and navigates his life in this crooked world, There must be dread of God and his word. So what is the guideline? Be in dread of God and of his word. The the psalmist right now is thinking about the judgment of God, about how God will judge and how God does judge. That causes him to love the word, but it also causes him, as he says in verse 20, my flesh trembles for fear of thee. His body, his soul, his flesh, his person bristles. It's as if the hairs on him are standing on end. The contemplation of the judgment of God and what God will do with those who are wicked, what God will do with those who stray from his word causes the psalmist to be in dread of God. He says, my flesh bristles, my flesh trembles. 
I, I shiver. I'm shaking when I think about your judgment, God. I, I don't take it lightly. I, I don't think that it's insignificant. I know that your judgment is serious. And for me to say, God, that you reject and that you remove, that causes me to respond in dread and in fear of you. What causes him to tremble? What causes his, him to quiver? It's his dread of God. Now, when we did our series on Wednesday night on the fear of God, we said there are three elements. The fear of God includes reverence, it includes awe, but it also includes healthy dread. That's what the psalmist is talking about. He's not talking about reverence and awe. He says, God, I'm shaking. I'm trembling. When I think about what you are going to do with the wicked, when I think about your judgment, it causes me to be in dread of you. It causes me to take you seriously and to fear you and to be afraid of you. And if you're not convinced of that, the psalmist goes on to say at the end, I am afraid of thy judgments. I'm scared of them. He actually uses the word fear. I fear your judgments. Somehow we have taken the idea of the judgments of God to mean that God is Santa's clause and he ain't telling the truth. He's just playing around. The psalmist says, God, you have rejected those who have gone astray. You have removed all the wicked of the earth and you will do that. When I think about your judgment, past, present, and future, I'm in fear of thee. I dread thee, and I dread your commandments. And so let me ask you this question, my friends. For those of you who are members of Fairview, for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the right of Hebrew says it's a fearful thing, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In light of all of this, what impact does the judgment of God upon unsaved people have upon you? To know that there will be men and women and boys and girls who will experience the terrifying thing of falling into the hands of the living God because they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that have any impact upon you? It impacted the psalmist to think that there will be people that we know that will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Read your Bibles. The great white throne judgment results in unsaved people being cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Read about being tormented in the fire. 
the psalmist considers the judgment of God and it keeps him on the narrow path. It reminds him that God doesn't take sin seriously, but it also helps him to relate to the wicked, the evildoers, to those who have gone astray, that God will have his day. So what are the guidelines for navigating godliness in a godless world? The first guideline is be devoted to God's word. Love it. Wait on it. Obey it. The second guideline is to be dependent upon God. Trust in the sufficiency of God. Believe that God is able to do what he has promised to do. Cry out to him in prayer but also be reminded of what he can do. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Don't forget the truth of the justice and judgment of God. That God will deal with the wicked. God will deal with evildoers. God will not turn his back on those who go astray. He will judge them. And sometimes that judgment will be in the present, but that judgment is guaranteed in the future. There will be a host of people who will experience the judgment of God. May that cause us to be in dread of God and his word, to be afraid of his judgments, and to be fearful of our God. And may it cause us to move and to act in this ungodly world and offer salvation to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the guidance of your word and how your word guides us to be godly to be holy. Help us to take heed to these guidelines that we find in the passage that we looked at this morning. Help us to be devoted to your word, to be dependent upon you, and to be in dread of you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.